We continue in our series through the book of Ephesians. This morning we are in chapter 6 and we will be looking at verses 13 through 18. And the title of our sermon is The Whole Armor of God. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are belt, shield, and sword. On October 6th in 69 B.C. was the battle of Tigranocerta, and it was between the Romans and the Armenians. Not Armenians, Armenians. Now, estimates vary, but uh, historians believe that the the Roman general Licinius Lucullus had in the neighborhood of about 10,000 troops, and the Armenian king Tigranus had 250,000 troops. In other words, the Romans had about 4% of the overall army of the Armenians. Nevertheless, Lucullus and his Roman army invaded Armenia, knowing that a win would guarantee that he would have fame, that he would have wealth, and there was, there was of course, some stated political reason for why they went to war. Uh, Armenia was offering asylum to Rome's enemies, but let's be real. Lucullus wanted glory. He wanted to win, that he would be remembered. So the Armenians were were still building this city of Tigranocerta when the city was surrounded by the Roman army. And, And Tigranus was an old man. He had very little military experience. And he tried to end the attack first simply by hurling insults at his enemy, but that didn't work. So eventually he sent 100,000 of his troops to come in behind the Romans, putting uh, the, the Roman troops between uh, the opposing forces and the city walls. However, the troops had almost no training, so Tigranus was relying mainly on his heavy infantry forces. Lucullus wasn't phased in the least bit, even though he was outnumbered, even though the high ground was on both sides of them. Instead, against all tactical wisdom, Lucullus led his small forces through deep waters and then uphill against Tigranus's strong, uh, strongest point of his army. Tigranus only trained, his only trained soldiers immediately gave up in the fight. And all the others sought to run away, and they were slaughtered on their way out. And the Armenians' capital city of Tigranocerta was lost to Rome. Now, throughout history, there have been many stories of war where an army that was vastly outnumbered won the day. And there's something built into us where we desire to see underdogs win. In fact, there are are several of those stories in the Bible Now, humanly speaking, I'm always fascinated by how they they pull it off. In nearly every case, the reason for fighting and the preparation for doing so has everything to do with why they fought so hard and eventually won. The Romans were, were skilled. They were highly trained fighters. They were unafraid. They were fierce. They were loyal to their flag. The Armenians had, for a while, they lived in relative peace. Militarily, they were untrained. They were enamored with luxury and ease. Now, the last group of men you want defending your city are those who are lazy, unskilled, and living high on the horse. Motivation and preparation are lacking greatly, and when it happens, it doesn't matter if the odds are 50 to 1, a win is no guarantee against a motivated, prepared force that has the right equipment, 
the right training, and the intestinal fortitude to get the job done. Now, last week, we looked at Paul's emphasis on spiritual warfare at the end of his letter to the Ephesian churches. And if you'll recall, he identified for us the real enemy that we are fighting against is not flesh and blood. It is not institutions and laws and programs and political parties, but the devil and his rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over what Paul calls this present darkness and against all spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we said that if we as Christians are to make progress in our Christian lives, if we're to be faithful to God and useful in his kingdom, then we're going to have to rightly identify and know who our enemy is. And we have to be prepared for warfare. And if if history teaches us anything about how to fight and win a war, it's not found in vast numbers and powerful equipment. It's in being well-trained and well-prepared. The best military forces in the entire world are training in ways that are intended to be as bad or worse than the actual circumstances that they will find themselves in on the battlefield. The best training is conducted under the worst possible circumstances. Bad weather, lack of sleep, inadequate food, fear-inducing situations. And and this morning, Paul is going to point us how to prepare ourselves, as we looked at last week, going to the, the most trying, the most difficult of schools for battle, that we can stay equipped. So not only that we are just in the battle and staying alive, but that we're fighting and that we're winning in the battle as well. We we have to be armed. We have to be equipped. We have to be prepared. And Paul tells us to do that, we must put on the full armor of God. So let's read together, beginning in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer." And supplication. Well, we're going to consider in this section four points this morning. And in our first point, Paul is providing for us a summary statement that's going to focus us uh, for the big picture before we get into the details. So we see in verse 13 that withstanding the attacks of the devil requires the whole armor of God. Now, Paul, in many ways, is reiterating what he's already commanded in verses 10 and 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God. And in verse 11, he says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and that you may be able to stand firm. So this idea of withstanding or standing is prominent. We, we have the reasons why, because the devil is scheming against us and the days are evil. Now, we have a charge, we have a responsibility, we have an enemy, and so now we need to be prepared. And the way to withstand the devil is to put on the whole armor of God. But before we get to that armor, I want to point out what Paul is saying. 
It's not just a command, it is, but it's also a promise. I hope you see that in verse 13. It's easy to read it over, but the promise is one that you will never get in any other situation in battle. You never have this guarantee in any other contest you will face. If you're in a sport, if you're on a battlefield, there's never a 100% guarantee that you will win. However, with God, the victory is sure. And here's the promise. If we really put on the full armor of God, we will, Paul says, we will stand. We will be victorious. And in the context of ultimate spiritual reality, we are offered real armor that is forged by the anvils of heaven. It's going to protect us in real war if we will only wear it. Now, I'm going to give a spoiler here because it seems like we're leading up to something and I'm going to tell you all these great realities, uh, things that you've never heard of before. And when you put them on, you're going to have this spiritual life where you're just going to sail through and never have any problems and just sort of float along with Jesus. But you already know these things that Paul is going to say. But as a people who need constant reminders... I pray this morning that the whole armor of God will be fresh on our minds as we continue to press forward in the battle as God's people. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. So he's very likely looking at the very men who were guarding him as he's writing this, and he's using them as an example to draw out his illustrations here. Roman soldiers had numerous parts on their armor, and actually uh, several more than Paul mentions here in these verses, but he focused on the main elements. He addresses a belt, a breastplate, sandals, a shield, a helmet, a sword, and then he adds one more element that is absolutely essential, and that is prayer. And these are all tied to spiritual realities that every believer has at their disposal to use in the battle. I want to consider Paul's reasoning here. He continues to deal with the fierceness of our enemy. And that can't be undervalued because we, so often we forget the nature and the reality of what is before us. But he tells us that we need to be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, grammatically, we should understand that this is um, being written in a corporate sense. So Paul's not just dealing with us as individual Christians, but rather as the body of Christ. So we have this dual reality going on. You and I have individual responsibilities in the battle. We can't, though, we can't fight alone. There are no Rambos in the army of God. We need one another. We need to come together as the body of Christ in The fight. We need mortar men. We need infantrymen. We need gunners. We need drivers. We need air support. We need it all working together in tandem if we're going to win. And and what this means is that we should be encouraging one another in the battle. We should be praying for one another in the battle. We should be asking what battles we're facing so that we can come alongside each other and offer support and aid. In this war, we are our brother's keepers. And we cannot let that responsibility go. Now, Paul also implies in verse 13 that this is an ongoing reality. We wake up, we go to bed, we live life in between, and all of it takes place, in Paul's words, in the evil day. Not all days are equally dangerous to us spiritually, 
But we need to know that the enemy is in waiting. We looked last week where Peter says he's, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, waiting to find someone to devour. The eyes of the world are always on us. We cannot give up our watch. Sometimes when a, a platoon takes up a, a position, they're instantly, they're aware, they're watching, they're always ready for an attack, but after a while, if they perceive the attack isn't coming, they get tired. When they think things are going to be okay, they begin to rest. Their alertness starts to waver. They fall asleep at guard. They take off their army and uh, all their armor, and then the enemy attacks. Now, one of the most difficult things in battle is to remain vigilant, making sure that we're always watching, making sure that even though we don't perceive there to be a threat present, we're ready if it is. The danger is found in the same way you you work regularly. Maybe you, you work regularly with a piece of equipment or a tool that can be a danger to you if you don't follow the right safety procedures. Imagine, for example, Jeff's going to love this, Mr. Safety. He, he loves these kinds of things. Imagine you have a job where you have a table saw and over and over again you're using that thing day by day by day. After a while, you've done it a thousand times a day. So when you go to the table, at first you maybe have gloves and eye protection and ear protection and you guide your piece of wood along with a guide stick and you have the blade guard down. But now, eh, I don't need all of that. You just use your hand. That blade guard broke off a long time ago. No big deal. And it's in those times when we are too comfortable with what's before us that we lose fingers, we lose arms, and we lose eyes. Are you prepared to fight the battle? Or are you too comfortable with the circumstances before you? Are you remaining vigilant? Are you watching out for the enemy's attacks? Is your head on a swivel? Are you always looking, always checking? I want you to think about an evil day in your life. A day when you sinned grievously, when you sinned knowingly, and yet you were very unguarded. Those situations don't just arise out of nowhere. They don't just come up. They're preceded by spiritual laziness and unpreparedness in our lives. Uh, Think about King David. David didn't just randomly happen upon Bathsheba bathing in the waters behind his home and accidentally fall into sin with her. No, David was at home when he should have been on the battlefield with his army. He was taking a break, a vacation from war, while all of his men were in the thick of it, fighting for him. So from the start, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. And after a lazy day around his palace, he decided to go up and get some fresh air, take a stroll along the roof, and sees across the way a woman bathing in the waters. And, and yet even still, he had opportunity to protect her and to protect his own heart and look away. But he doesn't. He, he summons her. He asks about her. Who is this woman? Bring her to me. And he lays with her and then finds out that she's pregnant, and so he continues on and finds her husband was one of his greatest warriors, Uriah. I'll bring Uriah home, and and Uriah will be with his wife, and then everyone will think that Uriah got her pregnant, and I'll be out of this, and no one will know. Except for Uriah was a much more noble and virtuous man than King David. He refused to lay with his wife while other men were out on the battlefield. 
So when David's plan did not work, he gave the order to Joab, the commander of the army, to arrange for Uriah's death on the battlefield. And it looked like the perfect crime. However, David's sin was eventually discovered, and it was dealt with by Nathan, the prophet of God. Now, David eventually repented, but Israel was never the same after that. His sin cost the entire nation a great deal. Now, perhaps you have been spiritually lazy. Perhaps you have been in a dry place and your communion with God is lacking. And and if you look at certain aspects of your, your life, you see idolatry, you see persistent sin, you see things that you know are wrong, but you continue to hold on to them, unrepented of, perhaps... You think it's quiet. Perhaps you think it's behind the scenes and not really affecting everyone but you anyone but you. It's just a glance from the roof. It's just someone else in my bedroom. Besides, it's not a big deal if no one else finds out about it, right? I, I once uh, spoke to a man who was a counselor who specialized in working with pastors and ministry leaders who had moral failures that disqualified them from ministry. And he said the circumstances of their sin always varied from man to man, but the things that got them there to the place where they did that were 100% of the time the same things. Every one of those men said to him, I never thought it would get this far. Not a single one of them was spending any time in God's word. None of them were listening to to others preaching. None of them were praying. None of them were reading their Bibles for any other reason than to study for sermons and, and counseling. Subtle steps along the way that led to big sin. Now, brothers and sisters, we have to remain vigilant. We have to stay focused because our enemy is seeking to destroy us and will not let up. And if we are not using the tools that the Lord has given us, he will find ways to infiltrate. We must, as the Apostle Paul exhorts us, stand firm. Martin Lloyd-Jones provides a powerful warning and encouragement. He says this, The Christian has put on the whole armor of God. He is filled with the strength and the power, and he has fought the battle in the evil day. Then, having done all, he is tempted to take off his armor. I have gained the victory, he says. All is well. Then, taking off his army, he lies down on his bed. No, says the apostle, having done all... Stand, go on standing, do not relax, maintain the field. As Martin Luther puts it at one point, maintain the field. You are always on duty in the Christian life. You can never relax. There is no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. Well, the Apostle Paul goes on to explain the specifics of this armor of God. That we put it on and we don't take a holiday in this spiritual battle. And he begins to identify what we see in our next point in verse 14. He's telling us that remaining steadfast in the battle requires truth and righteousness. Now the first two items of armor mentioned by Paul are the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And the belt of a Roman soldier kept everything in place. It was a large leather belt, and they cinched it down very tight so their their tunic wouldn't get in the way, and it provided a place for them to store things like their sword. 
And without the belt, he would be very impeded in battle. He'd never be able to focus on the task because things would be flying around. He wouldn't be able to keep his stuff uh, attached to his body. He'd be made nearly useless in the fight. Likewise, truth performs this very important role in spiritual warfare. Truth is what holds everything in place. It's what guards us against being entangled, against being impeded. Jesus told us in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There is objective spiritual truth in Jesus and in his word. Truth about God, truth about ourselves, truth about history, truth about what's coming in the future. And without it, we do not have a chance to fight a spiritual battle and win. Without cinching ourselves tightly with the truth of Scripture, all of the other weapons of warfare are just going to get in the way, and they're going to be useless because we don't have anything to hold them down tightly as we run into the war. You're not going to find any Christians in history who were incredibly useful and effective in the kingdom of God who didn't hold tenaciously to the truth. It's kind of popular for people to talk about What is the bare minimum that I have to believe in order to be a Christian? What is the very least thing that we have to hold to in order that we can go to heaven? I hope we don't have that mindset. I hope we don't think that way. Do you just want to make it through the battle without getting killed? Is that your objective? Or do you want to be victorious? Do you want to be effective? There's a significant difference. And if you're not fastening on the belt of truth, If knowing and understanding more of God's truth isn't attractive to you, if you don't don't really care and your mindset is that all that matters are the basics and nothing else is really worth spending my time on, when the battle gets tough, when things start to turn difficult, stuff's going to get in the way. You're not going to know how to respond. If suffering and persecution show up at your doorstep, and you haven't made sure that the truth about those things is fastened tightly, how are you going to confront it? How are you going to walk through? Training and equipping does not happen on the battlefield. It needs to happen before we get there. The truth you're learning today and the things that you think about as you read the scriptures and you read other books and you listen to sermons and you go to Bible studies and you sit in Sunday school classes and small groups... It may land on you today as truth that you may not need right here and right now for the circumstances you're facing right here. But the day will come when you will be thankful that you have truth holding all of it in place. Now, hand in hand with truth, Paul shows us, is righteousness. The breastplate of the armor this was designed to protect a warrior's vital organs from being um, struck with the, the deadly sword thrusts of the enemy, particularly the heart. But we have to know that this isn't a righteousness that we have on our own. It isn't a righteousness that comes from within us. The breastplate of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, freely given to all who have faith in him. My righteousness that I provide will not protect me from anything because I don't have any. Isaiah 64 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. 
All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. And then he says, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, Paul tells us in Romans 1, there is a righteousness from God. Isaiah 59 says, God puts on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And he comes out to destroy his enemies. So here in Ephesians, Paul is giving us this shining armor of righteousness as a picture that God provides for his people. Uh, Paul knew this in his own life. In, in Philippians chapter 3, he, remember he goes through all of the things that he was depending on in his life, all of the things that he was putting forward as his own righteousness and, and, and the things he thought were going to bring him safely to heaven. And he says, I consider it all rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Brothers and sisters, you don't fashion your own breastplate. You don't provide your own armor at all, in fact. The breastplate of righteousness comes only through union with Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is from him. And friends, if you don't have the righteousness of Christ, nothing will save you. The enemy will deal a fatal blow to your vital organs and you will die. And you will die without Christ and you will be cast away forever. But if you have the righteousness of Christ, by faith in Christ, repentance of your sin, you are safe for eternity. You are safe in the righteousness of Christ. Well, with our belts tightened and our breastplates secure, our third point this morning is that being ready to move forward requires the gospel of peace. And we see that in verse 15. In the early 1950s, when the U.S. military was involved in the conflict in Korea, a lot of men were experiencing very severe cases of frostbite because they weren't prepared for the climate they were sent to. The area was so damp that when temperatures dropped in the evenings, their wet feet froze. The problem for them wasn't bad weapons. It wasn't an impenetrable enemy. It was inadequate boots something many people would probably pay very little attention to. We just assume what's there is good enough. It, it, it actually makes all the difference in the world. If your boots don't work, you can't move anywhere. If your feet are frozen to the ground, you're not budging. The most effective armies in the ancient world moved by foot. So if what was on their feet was inadequate, they were going to fail in their mission. So Paul uses this illustration to tell us that if we're going to remain mobile, if we're going to remain effective, if we're going to be useful at all, we must put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. In Romans ten fifteen, Paul again is quoting Isaiah 52 of the necessity of the office of preaching. He says, and how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those 
who bring good news. Now, there's some imagery here that Paul is, is drawing from. This can be traced back to communication systems in the ancient world, particularly with respect to battle line communications. Every army had a man appointed who would run back to the city and tell them whether or not they won or they lost. And they would keep watchers on the walls to see when that man was coming. Now, for some, some cities, if the man brought back bad news that they had lost, they killed the messenger. That's where the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, comes from. They killed him because they had lost. And so the watchers on the wall would look and they would see, and you could assume if a man was walking back with bad news, knowing he was going to die, he probably wasn't walking with much of a swiftness at all. Head down, dragging his feet, they knew what was coming. However, if he came to announce victory, he was applauded, he was upheld himself as a hero, as a victor. And so he would run and they could see the dust flying from their feet as they came. And that's when We have this statement, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And Paul uses this illustration to talk about the gospel. How beautiful are those who run and rush to tell us that we have been victorious and we can be victorious in Christ. There's nothing more beautiful than to see a messenger who is bringing the good news of Christ. That's what the gospel is, good news. It's the good news of the peace that we have with God being reconciled to the Father by the work of Jesus Christ. And and the gospel becomes that which protects our feet. It covers our feet. It makes us mobile in the battle against cosmic evil. Brothers and sisters, if, if we are to move forward as the church, if we are to fulfill our mission and fight to victory in the battle before us, we cannot lose. We cannot assume. We, we cannot waver on this element, on the gospel of peace. If we lose the gospel, we lose everything. Remember in Galatians, Paul talked about anyone adulterating the gospel. He didn't say, don't pay them any attention. He didn't say, just ignore them. He said, just let them do what they want to do. No, he said, let them be accursed. If you get the gospel wrong, you get it all wrong, and people die and go to hell because of it. If we're concerned about the souls of men, we're concerned that we fasten on the right footwear, that we wear the gospel of peace, and that we carry with beautiful feet the gospel to all who will hear. When things get hard, sometimes we panic. And and when life is hard and spiritual life seems dry, we we might even try to run away. We might try to hide. And along the way, instead of being useful in the battle, our fellow fellow warriors might actually see us as a burden rather than a blessing. And if, if that's you, if that's true of you right now, you need to reopen the lines of gospel communication. You need to ask God for peace. And, and God promises that it will come as you seek it. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you stand in the peace of Christ, you will stand in the battle and you will not fail. Well, lastly this morning, when we are armored up with truth and righteousness and the truth of the gospel of peace, 
We need to stay alive, but we don't just need to stay alive. We need to take the fight to the enemy. So our final point this morning is in verses 16 through 18. Staying alive and fighting requires faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. Now, Paul concludes his description of spiritual battle armor with a shield, a helmet, and a sword. The Roman soldier carried a very heavy wooden shield, about four feet tall. He would carry it into battle. It looked like a door. He could put his whole body behind that thing, and it would protect him from arrows and javelins, and flaming arrows often would hit it and get snuffed out. So he'd walk around, and his shield would be smoking. That looks like a cool picture to me. Paul's illustration for us is that the enemy is launching these flaming arrows at us. Temptations, lies, deceptions. He's doing this constantly to bring us to our end. But if we have faith, if we are trusting in God and we are trusting in His Word, no matter how difficult our circumstances seem, the fiery arrows have no effect on us. But it's so easy to not want to hold up that shield. It gets heavy. In times, it's a great burden. It seems so, so much. I want to let it down a bit. And after all, I'm, I'm not going to get hit with those arrows. What's the, what's the big deal? I haven't been hit yet. Everything's, everything's fine. I'm doing well. Maybe someone else needs more of that than I do. Paul responds to that. He tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, it is, it is God's will that you should be holy that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And he says in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about these things. Brothers and sisters, it's no exaggeration that in our earthly lives, thousands of deadly, blazing arrows are launched at the Christian. But the answer to respond to them is not to get lax and to not let our shield of faith down, but to hold it up and to hold it high. The Apostle John wrote, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Why? Because faith binds us in vital union with Christ. Faith is not just belief. It is belief plus trust. It is resting in God and it is resting in his word to us. Well, we need to protect our heads too. And and Paul points to the next part, which is the helmet of salvation. Roman military helmets were a band, they had a band to protect the forehead and plates on their cheeks and it extended down their back to protect their necks. And when the helmet was strapped properly in place, it exposed very little besides their eyes and their nose and their mouth. Virtually the only weapons which could penetrate their helmets were hammers or axes. Now in Paul's imagery, the helmet of salvation is the assurance of salvation and and it resulted in confidence. A helmet is a confidence builder. Properly worn and used... It affords remarkable protection, but it also helps us to feel safe. I'm, I'm willing to go a lot faster on a bike if I have a helmet on. But on the ancient battlefield, the helmet was incredibly important because not were you just fighting in close. There were arrows and axes and javelins flying all around. 
The helmet enabled a warrior to stand where he otherwise wouldn't have stood. But here's the encouragement in in our spiritual armor. The helmet of salvation assures us that whatever happens, that we will be saved and we will experience victory in Christ. Paul reminds us in Philippians 1, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Are you embattled? Are you feeling this war right now in your life? If so, are you fearful and lacking in spiritual confidence? Are you feeling weak? Reach for your helmet. Pull it down hard over your ears. Fasten the strap and stand tall in the Lord. It is His helmet so nothing can fail you. You are already victorious in Christ because salvation is yours and it can never be snuffed out if you are in Christ. But a soldier isn't a soldier just by wearing armor. He needs an offensive weapon as well. The Roman legionnaires had a double-edged sword. It was able to get in close to his enemy. He was able to fight quickly and effectively. On the spiritual battlefield, Paul tells us that our sword is the Word of God. The best example of how it ought to be used is when when Jesus was in the wilderness and and the devil sought to do what he does. And he seeks to do that with all of us and tempt us and twisting the Word of God in order to do it. So he tempts Jesus, but what does Jesus do? He had all the authority to cast him away. But what does he do instead? He turns to use his sword. He turns to use the word of God effectively. Satan three times tempts Christ, and Christ responded each time with quotes from Scripture. Christ, the divine warrior, is the master swordsman. And his final thrust sent the devil away, and and Christ was left alone victorious in the wilderness. So let's take this important lesson. If Christ, the divine man, in battling Satan while here on earth did so with the sword of the word, how much more do we frail men and women need to wield the same sword if we're going to be victorious? We must heed the example of the psalmist who says in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How does that work? Well, well God's, God's word reveals God's mind, and God's mind cannot be subject to sin. Therefore, if we fill our hearts with the word, sin and temptation cannot dominate us. So the word of God is an awesome defensive weapon, but it's especially effective in taking the offense. The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now the sword may tear you up sometimes. It may rip you to pieces. But it won't kill you. It will only bring healing. Brothers and sisters, when we're in battle, I, I cannot use your sword and you cannot use my sword. And you won't be effective if you don't know how to use your sword and if you don't keep it sharp and at the ready. What are you doing with your sword? Where is it? Is it it sitting on your shelf during the week? Is it tucked away in the car? Is it something you get out once a week on Sunday mornings? We are at war. If your sword is not razor sharp and if you don't know how to use it, you're just bringing your fist to a drone strike. 
There is no comparison whatsoever. Read it. Listen to it. Read and preached. Talk about it. Read books about it. Study it. Memorize it. Get the Word of God in your heart because it is your sword and you need it for battle. Well, we can put all of our armor on. We can be ready for battle. We can have a sharpened sword, but we need to pray. We'll spend more time on this next week, but I didn't want us to leave the text without being reminded of this essential element. If we are to be victorious, prayer, prayer that we stand faithful, prayer that the Lord protects us from the evil one, prayer that we might not fall to temptation, prayer for wisdom in the midst of the battle, prayer that all of our armor will serve us well. In ancient times, before a squire was knighted, he would spend all night in vigil at the castle chapel, and he would spread all of his armor before him, and he offered his soul up to the, to the Lord. This is, this is a way that we ought to don the armor of God, for he is the one who teaches us the way of war. He teaches us how to fight, and he fights with us in the battle through our hands and through our feet. It is in communion with Christ that our armor is set and reset for battle every single day. And we must do so. We must put it on prayerfully. Brothers and sisters, put your armor on and prepare for war knowing that the best part of the story, the best part of the story is that we have already won in Christ. So fight like you've already won. Don't give up. Keep pressing on against the enemy because as hard as he tries and as as much as all of the forces of hell are arrayed against us, the king of our kingdom has already crushed his head under his foot and victory has already been declared. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. So press on. Press on, dear soldiers of Christ. It is not in vain. The Lord will watch over you. The Lord will protect you. The Lord has already won for you. So press on, faithful in the fight, in the whole armor of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your promises. And we thank you, Lord, that while we fight this battle, we know a battle not with flesh and blood. We know a battle against all of the cosmic forces arrayed against us. But we know a battle that has been won on our behalf in Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning, Father, that you would restore our faith and strengthen us. That you would help us to remember that we are victorious in Christ in whom we have union. That for those who are living in a dry and weary land spiritually, that you would restore their communion with you. That it would be sweet and fulfilling. That they would know of your love and your presence in their lives. Father, for those who do not know Christ, we pray for your blessing upon them. That they would hear your word. And that you would be pleased by the power of your spirit to give them new life in Jesus Christ. By faith and repentance. And so we pray all of these things, thankful that our King is victorious and we can rest fully and completely in Him and fight in the battle knowing that it is ours. And we ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.